Now we will move into the main message of this Sabbath day here, brought to us by our brother and deacon Jan Kowalczyk, entitled The Consequences of Wrong Choices. The Consequences of Wrong Choices. Thank you, Pastor Murray, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to all of you for watching us online at this time. Thank you for tuning here each week. 2020, I can't believe it. I lived on this earth for a half a century now. It just feels like I'm so old for some reasons. So I'll be talking, I'll be speaking about marriages Today's part one, I don't know how many parts I will have, we'll see, God will provide. According to the latest statistics, Statistic Canada, approximately 38% of all marriages end in divorce in this country, 38%, that's the latest one. The rate of divorce peaked in 1980s, it went to the highest point, 41%. So I did a little bit of statistics around the world, like which countries got the highest rate of divorce, which countries got the lowest one. So we can play a little, a little bit, a little game here, if you want to guess. Do you have any idea what's the highest country with divorce rate in the world right now? Any idea? What would be the highest country with the highest divorce rate? Just think about it for a second. As you're thinking, what can be the one country? Let me give you who is number five on the list. I will go from the, from the five up. So number five is United States with average 46%. That's, li- that's on the list number five. Number four is Russia with 55% divorce rate. Number three is France. I said Russia 55 is actually Russia 51. France is 55 percent of divorce. And now where the surprises come. Number two, at least for me, number two country with the highest divorce rate is Spain, 65. 65. Number one country, a little country in Europe, very small population, Luxembourg. Anybody can guess Divorce rate in this little country. Shoot the number. Very close, 87. 87. It's unbelievable. But I want you just to realize that this little country is also a tax haven for many of the rich people, okay? People do different things just to save on taxations, right? So... I don't know the full numbers, the numbers behind it, but it's 87. It's unbelievable. Now, let's play the other game, go the other way, opposite way. What country would have the lowest rate of divorce in the world? What country can think would have the lowest rate of divorce as of right now? Let me do the same thing. I'll go from number five and go up, okay? Turkey, number five, 22%. Mexico, number four, 15%. Colombia, 9%. Chile, South America, 3%. 
Number one country. Anyone can guess. With the lowest award rate. Number one. Anyone, come on, just guess. No. 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 India. India. Anybody can guess the percentage ratio? Wow. Absolutely right. One percent. Let me give you the reason why. Some people would say it's the society pressure, which is the it is which is true. Society pressure on divorce. But you know why? Arranged marriages in India. So to get two young people to marry, there is a preparation that in some cases lasts years before the families actually come together. One percent. Think about it. One percent. Now, what I want to do for the rest of my time, I want to talk about marriage. And especially, I want to show you, I want to go with you through the Bible, through the Hebrew Bible. I want to show you some individuals who make a horrible choice by choosing the wrong partner in marriage. And I want to show you the consequences, not just on this individual, but on the whole family, on the whole society, and on the whole country as the result of picking a mate was actually going against God's law. So let me start first with what is the biblical purpose of marriage? What's the biblical purpose of marriage? And we know the answer because we've heard from so many different speakers. But let's just review it in Genesis chapter 2. It is fascinating when you read these accounts. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24... The foundation is laid down for us right here at the beginning of your Bible. And as we read this thing, in verse 23, just jumping right here into the context, and Adam said, this is about, you know, his partner. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God separated from one, make two individuals, and as soon as God separated them, he joined them together. And look what it says, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh one more time. One flesh. This is God's intention for marriage from the beginning. God's intention never changes. Never ever, from the beginning to the end, no matter how we interpret the law, what each country interprets the law, the God's intention never changes. Now, if you go chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, and verse 28. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. That's the another purpose of a godly marriage. Not just to get together, but be fruitful and multiply. And now, why is this so important? 
Because most people will look at this verse and will say, God gave us the command to multiply. And they'll have to, they will try to have as many children as physically possible. But what about bearing the fruits? If we are created in God's image, what is God expecting of us? Then as we multiply, we'll create children in God's image. It's not about the quantity, it's all about the quality. It's not how many children we can multiply. What kind of family can we raise so we can have the offspring who are godly? Now, Malachi chapter 2, it will confirm here through the prophet, Malachi chapter 2. At the end of the Hebrew Bible. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. And just jumping here into the context. Verse 15. But did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? For what purpose? Why is God making us one? He seeks godly offspring. He seeks godly offsprings. If you go into the Hebrew here, the Hebrew text, you can actually say he's looking one for a seed of God. We you know if you want to check another translation, which is also correct. Godly offspring. This is how important it is. Not how many children we can produce, but how many godly offsprings we can produce. First John chapter 3. Let's go to the apostolic writings now. First John chapter 3. And look at verse 1 and 2. First John chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Think about it. Children of God. This is the purpose of God. Children of God. Therefore, the word does not know us because it did not know him. But verse 2. Beloved, now. We don't have the fullness of the Spirit yet. We are not resurrected yet. We are not in a spiritual form yet. But look what, what John is writing about us. Now, we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know. We know already that we are children of God. So would it make sense? Because we are children of God. Our offsprings. Supposed to be also. In the image of God. Not about quality. It's all about the quantity. All about the quantity. There is nothing more important. From the beginning of the Bible. To the end of the Bible. There is nothing more important than the concept of marriage, than concept of family. The Bible starts from the marriage, and Bible ends with the marriage. And every truth inside it, it just supplements the information. This is how it is. And we can help it. The institutions of marriage is the oldest one. 
It's actually one of the first one in the Bible. And it's blessing the human being so much on this planet. Without it, we wouldn't be here. Now, so, let me summarize this first part. God separate woman from the man, from one flesh, he separate and make them two, and as soon as they separate them, he make them one again. It's fascinating. For what reasons? Again and again, that we can produce the godly offspring. This is the whole purpose of marriage. So, to have a godly relationship, a very godly relationship, we have to have strong marriages. If you have strong marriages, we will have a godly relationship, and we will have a godly offspring. It goes hand in hand. Now, Second Corinthians, just, just go for a moment here, how important it is. And... For young people who just want to get married, let me tell you that you know you're going to make any important decision in your life, many important decisions. You know, we'll make important decisions as where to go to school, what to study, you know, what kind of home to buy, what kind of car to buy, what kind of business to go in. But there is nothing more important as who your partner is going to be. Because this decision will set your life for eternity. That's how important this decision is. And, you know, when I was speaking about the statistics here, let me share a a little bit of history about my family, just quickly here. And I'm I'm not not intentions of myself to, you know, just to brag brag how great my family is. But from the beginning... My mom and my dad were telling every single one of us how important marriage is. Every single one of us. You know, when I was the youngest one, my mom always told me, be careful, young son, when you go out. You know, I know we're going to drink some alcohol and you're going to do some stupid stuff. You will have plenty of chances to do some horrible acts, you know, and just, you know, go and have sex with some of the ladies. She always told me this thing. And you know what? I always laughed. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, don't worry, mom. Don't worry, mom. And you know what? I had occasions to do this thing. I had plenty occasions to do this thing. And you know what happened? I had mom ringing in my ear. My son, don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. And it's actually, you know, many times this thing actually, actually stopped me from doing this horrible things. So your moms and your dads, you do have influence. Even though your kids might look at you and say, you know, like, yeah, 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 we know everything. You know, yeah, 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 we don't want to talk about sex. Yeah, 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 all this, you know, things. You do have influence. So in my family, there were six of us. Out of six of us, there's only one brother that is divorced. All the rest of us, my sister, the oldest sister last year, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary. Next year, if we are alive, I'm the youngest one. If we are alive, we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary. Everyone in between, it's about 40 or average will be 40. My oldest sister had three kids. Every single one of them is still married. And she's got grandchildren as of right now. And I can go through all this list, all the kids so far. If all gather everyone here in this room, I'll have about 60 people. You know, if you have 60 people, strong families like that, you know, guess what? 
Who wants to mess up with my family? Who wants to mess up with my family? No, why? Because we are strong. We're standing on something. And this is the model. That actually you're going to go and read through the Bible. This is actually godly thing to do to have a strong family. Without it, what do we stand for? We just become like the other nations, like the other people. We have no ground to stand on. So now here's Second Corinthians. Before you make this decision who to marry, Second Corinthians chapter 6. You all know the scripture, but let me just remind you. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And right here, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Do not, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If you two people have a different standards, different philosophy on life, how are you going to agree? How are you going to agree not just to how you're going to run your business, how you're going to, you know, do this or the other things, but how are you going to agree with somebody, how are you going to raise your children? We'll never ever be able to agree on it. And I have a plenty of examples from my life, from my people that I know, that is affecting them for life. Things like that. If you want to raise your children in a godly manner, you will have opposition. It's just a matter of time. You'll have opposition. Just keep reading here. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Can you, can you just join together light with darkness? Can they coexist? No. Either it's light or it's darkness. You can't have both. You can't have both. Now, and what accord has Christ with Belilah? Or what part has a believer with unbeliever? What part? We can't. We don't have the same platform to stand on. We can. We can't coexist. So now, what I want to do for the rest of the day, I want to look at some of the examples in the Hebrew Bible and just hopefully help you to realize how making this choice, how important it is, and what the consequences can be if you make the wrong decision. Let's go to Abraham, chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18. And, you know, many times we read some of the passages over and over again, and we, and we miss them. Sometimes we miss some important points there. Genesis chapter 18. And just one verse from here, verse 19. Look what God says about Abraham here. For I have known him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord might bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. To do the righteousness, not just him, but his entire household. Move over to Genesis chapter 24. Just see how that play out. Genesis chapter 24. Genesis, Genesis chapter 24. 
Look at verse 2. So Abraham, Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, that's his servant, that's not his son, that's his servant, that's not Isaac, that's not his wife, he's not a family member, his servant. Please put your hand under my tie. Servant. Servant, you should be just able to tell your servant, you go, and servant just goes. Verse 3, look, his servant. And I will make you swear by the Lord, wait a minute, he's just the servant. His servant, whom is you worshipping? His servant. The same God. Who's, 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 who's God? God of Abraham. He says, make your swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Really? Where did we see a prohibition so far when you read, as Pastor Murray said when he was doing with his sermon speaking about the Torah? How did he know, Abraham know, we didn't have a book of Exodus yet, we didn't have a book of Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, how did he know not to intermarry with the Canaanite woman? Who told him that? Just keep reading. Verse 4. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, very logical, very logical interpretation, very logical thinking. And the servant said to him, perhaps, I can go, but perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Okay? Second option. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came, Abraham? Remember what happened to Abraham? God told him, get out. Get out of this country. You will never come back here. Get out. This country is evil for you. Full of paganism. Come out. Move out. What will Abraham answer? Abraham answered, Beware. That you do not take my son back there. This is the command from God. Don't take him back there. No, that's not an option. I told you what to do. Look, look a little bit farther. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land. Look at this. What a faith. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from their period. That's it. If God give you a command to do something like that, God will provide. For everything everything else, just have faith. And be patient. And I know that we all struggle with this thing. Because, you know, we don't have mind of God. And for us, sometimes it's very difficult to understand our circumstance. And we like to take a shortcut. We like to take, make some other options. Because we're thinking we're running out of options here. With God, you never run out of options. Never, ever, you run out of options here. And now, that's Abraham. What a positive role model to all of us. Not just his son is faithful. His entire household worshipping the same God. 
exactly what God said in, in Genesis chapter 18. This is my guy. I like Abraham. And the reason why I like it is because he will command his children to do righteousness, my righteousness. So now, let's just move over to the time of Deuteronomy. We'll go back there a little bit later, but Deuteronomy chapter 7. So the just about, now we have a, from Abraham, now we have the entire nation, children of Israel. And they're just about to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 7. There it is. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. There is the warning that God says to them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which is, which, which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. And here go the list. The Hittites, the Girgishites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites. If you missed it, seven. Seven. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them, you shall not give your daughters to their son, and not take and, and not take their daughters for your son. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. This is the warning. Question: Did they heed the warning? Do we heed the warning? Oh, uh, you know we live in different day and age, right? God back then was very racist. He only preferred the one race, the one people, and he hated everybody else. That's not true. We have the reasons why. Right? And we know the rest of the story. Once they entered the promised land, did they, pro- did they produce actually the, the offspring to God or did they produce the offspring, offspring of the devil? We know. The offspring of the devil. First John chapter 3. God knew already back then what's going to happen to his people. Instead of them being the influential force and attracts other people, it happened totally the opposite way opposite way. They were influenced by the other pagan nations around them accepting totally different God. That was the end that was the end of the story. First John chapter three. You know we live in a different day now, different society. This thing is just in the old testament. We call it the old testament. It does it is not applicable to us anymore. We are Christians now. We follow of Christ. First John chapter 3 verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So as we read this thing, is there a third category in between? So let's say we have a children of God on the right side. We have children of the devil on the left side. What's in the middle? What's in the middle? Oh, but well, look at this guy. He's so cute. 
He's so nice. He's so polite. Which category is he? Where would he fit here? Whoever does not practice righteousness, which category he belongs to? In the middle? No. The same warning for us. The same warning for us. Joshua chapter 23. That's the scripture where it was read already, but we're going to come back to the scriptures a few times. Second time now and probably one more time. Joshua chapter 23. So now they are about to cross the Jordan River and go and conquer the promised land. At the end of life of Joshua, this is the warning that he sent to his people. Verse 11. Verse 11. Therefore, take careful heed to yourself that you love the Lord your God. How you will do that? Or else, if you need, you do go back and cling to the remnant of this nation that, that remains among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and torch in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. What a prophecy. And guess what? It was 100% fulfilled. Exactly what God was saying here. What Joshua is writing to his people. Exactly 100% fulfilled. How this thing happen? Let's go to the Hebrew Bibles, through some of the examples. And now we're going to go through some details. Some horrible details. What happened when the children of Israel choose to marry the pagan influence? Okay? And it's horrible. It's so horrible. That sometimes when you read these accounts, you're wondering how this can be the Word of God. But you know what? This is the beauty of the Word of God. He doesn't hide anything. That's exactly who, he, who we are. That's exactly what they are capable to do. We are no exceptions, brethren. You know, because we live under the new you know, covenant. No exceptions. We are the same horrible people as they were. In some cases, even worse. In some cases. Let's look at some of the examples here. First King chapter 11. I would like to start with Solomon. First King chapter 11. Verse 1. First King chapter 11, verse, verse 1. Let's start with Solomon. But King Solomon loved many, many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, why? Because God is racist? No. Surely they will 
Turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to, clung this in love. Clung to this in love. That's it. I am so in love. There you go. That's the result. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4. When did it happen? For it was so when Solomon was old, not when he was young and strong, that he was maybe capable of trusting God and to, to some degree do God's will. But when he was old, that his wife turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Malcolm, the, the abominations of the Amorite. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the ab- abomination of Moab, and and on the hills that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abominations of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his hearts had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him. Wow. Amazing. But, Sometimes we'll justify, say, I'll be strong in the Lord. I'll be able to manage it. I'll be able to convert the other person. Just give me time, give me space, and I will do this thing. Read the examples of the Bible. Even God, even people after God's own heart struggle with this issue over and over and over again. Now, hold your place in First King, but go to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles Chapter 12. What was the results what Solomon did? So now it's his son. The Solomon's son. Reborn. How the sins of the father affected his children. So, Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1. Now it came to pass, just the one verse. So we just have an idea what I'm talking about. Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. That's the son of Solomon, okay? But look. That he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with it. One person, Solomon, now is going through his son, right? Now he's going through his son. Go back to First King. First King chapter 12. I will show you the consequences. First King chapter 12. Look at verse 28. So the kingdom of Israel eventually was split into the two. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. As results of Solomon's sin. Now we have two kings now. We have two countries. We have two kingdoms. We have two kings. Look here. Verse 28. Therefore... Verse 28 here. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. You know what? I can travel to London. It's just too far for me. I'll go somewhere closer here. You know, they might not worship the way how we do it. 
But, you know, it's okay. Why should I waste the gas and, you know, travel such a distance? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sick and uh, I don't feel good and it's a little bit raining today. It might be snow a little bit, you know. Why do this thing? You know, I'm strong. I can handle these things. You know, I can, I can manage it. So he says, where you go? Why you, you don't need to travel that far. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in battle, and, and the other one he put in Dan. Now this thing become a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were, who were not of all sons of Levi. I want you just to be careful here. You see, the next generations... They're not saying that they're not worshipping the God of Israel. They're saying, no, you're worshipping the God of Israel. But now, let's do some modifications here. So you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You know, I'll make a place that will be a little bit closer for you. Now you know what? Maybe the seventh month is not perfect. Or maybe the first month is not perfect. As we read the next, next verse, 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast. Okay? On the 15th day... It's exactly the same feast. On the 15th day, on the 15th day, but it's on the 8th month. Okay? It's on the 8th, on the, on the, on the different month. On the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. Where do we get all the other feasts that we have right now? Everywhere around us. How did they come? Always, the next generation will introduce something else. But he's still, right now, he's still the God of Israel. At least, the God of Israel. Yeah, we worship God a different day. We worship God with different feasts. It doesn't matter. But we still worship the same God. So it should be okay. Right? It's still Jesus Christ. So what's the difference? Sunday, Saturday, Easter, Passover, Tabernacle, Christmas. Not much difference. Still the same God. Really? Really? First King chapter 16. So, let's move on. Next few generations down the line. First King chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Have you heard the name Ahab? Have you heard this king Ahab, right? Have you read about it, how horrible this individual was? Do you see anybody, let's call it in a Christian circle, that name their son, Ahab. No, right? Thousands of years have passed. And no one wants to name a son Ahab. Let's keep reading. The son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as a wife Jezebel. Hold on. Does anyone in a Christian circle name a daughter Jezebel? Why not? Why not? Jezebel, the daughter of Ebal, the king of what? Sidonians, right? 
And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, few generations down the line, is no longer the God of Israel that we're worshipping here. Now we lost totally the track who the king of Israel is. We don't know anymore. And it's not just we don't know. We don't even care. We have a new God. Look, this God is just so much more powerful than that God that our forefather used to serve. How long? Four or five generations down the, down the line. Progressively. One thing at a time. These people here are very progressive. Very progressive. Now, First King chapter 21. How these decisions affect the future generations. First King chapter 21. Just break into the context here, but just read it. I will make your, to Ahab. Elijah the prophet, you know, actually is writing here. Not writing here, but here's the prophecy against Ahab. Actually, the word of the Lord against, and he says like this. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, your wife, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the, of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Verse 25. Pay attention to Dido, because sometimes we read it, we may skip some, some important words, you know, in the verses. But there was no one like Ahab, okay, there was no one like Ahab, look, who what? Sold himself. Sold himself to the wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Why? Read the answer. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. His wife stirred him up. Wait a minute. But Jenny telling me that this time, men were very powerful. Women had nothing to say. They would just live under the oppression. Oh, really? Look here. Throughout the king's history, what women did. How influence. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. See, we might talk and say that these people are very progressive. No, these people are regressing. They're going the opposite side. They lost the track. They were not progressing. They were going back to the same roots, to their forefathers, to paganism, to worship false gods. But, the man alone, without influence from his wife, the man alone, Ahab, Verse 27. So it was when Ahab heard this word, those words, that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. So this guy somehow, for some reasons, find a little bit faith in his heart. 
Did it last long? Not really. Why? Again, because of the influence of his, of his wife. So, in this case, we're going to go a little bit further. Okay? We're going to see the disaster unfolding after three generations. Okay? That's not the end of it. Second Chronicles. Just, just hold your place here in Kings. But Second Chronicles chapter 17 now. Second Chronicles chapter 17. And here... Look at verse 3. Now we have the king of Judah, a godly king, a very good king, okay, Jehoshaphat. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the balls, okay. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the ball, but, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandment. And not according to the acts of Israel. Verse 5. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. And he did wonderful reformation in his country. Wonderful reformation. He went to the point. He was so good. But God blessed him so much that he lost a touch. He lost his vision where he was supposed to go. And let me show you what he did. Go back to, go, go back to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. First Kings chapter 22. Verse 1. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit king of Israel. Any guess who was the king of Israel at that time? Ahab. Okay. And the king of Israel said to his servant, Do you know the drama that Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Verse 4. So, so he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight Adramat Gilead? And Jehoshaphat responded, he said to the king of Israel. Look at his response. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Really? Really? Of all the people, you have such a wonderful start. Now, you're going to align yourself with the one of the worst people that ever lived in the kingdom of Israel. Really? Why? Why? Uh, first, hold on, let me find my space here. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 18. Hold your place here in Second Kings. Second Chronicles chapter 18. Verse 
Jehoshaphat, verse 1, had riches and honor in abundance. And by what? By marriage. By marriage, he allied himself with Ahab. He's not King Jehoshaphat. It's his son. Okay? Something that should never take place. Should never ever take place. But it did. Alliance by marriage between these two. Look at, look at the consequences. What happened when King of Judah decided to make alliance with this ungodly King of Israel. Go back to 1st King chapter 22. First King chapter 22. We read this thing, so it might be for you people. And your horses are my horses. So, Second King chapter 8. Second Kings chapter 8 now. And look at verse 16. Second Kings chapter 8, verse 16 to 18. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. So he's married to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, this new, the son of Jehoshaphat. And verse 18, look what happened, the next generation. It took so much to reform Judah, so much, so much courage, desperation, you know, faith, his son, the next one. And he walked in the way of the king of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab, was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see the repeat story over and over and over again. And who does the influencing in all of these marriages? Who does the influencing? Do we understand now when God says, please do not intermarry with unbelievers? Do we see why? Can we understand why is it like that? How important this thing is? So the second marriage produced disaster results. You think that's the bottom? You think that's the lowest it can go? No way. It can go even worse than that. Second Kings chapter 11 now. Second Kings chapter 11. We're going to be introduced to another name here. Second Kings chapter 11. When Ataliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she aroused and destroyed all the royal heirs. Who was this woman? That's exactly coming from the same thing, from the house of Ahab. That was the woman that married the Jehoshaphat's son. You know what? You know what she did? As you read about it, but Jehoshaphat 
Verse 2, but Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Yoram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were being murdered. The grandmother killed all her grandchildren to have the throne of the kingdom. How low you can go? Is there a stop to this thing? Once you, once you start breaking commandments, how far do you go? Or did you stop at the bottom? Is there ever a bottom? Things like a bottom. Is there ever something like that? She murdered his grandchildren just to reign on the throne. You see? I told you it's going to go even worse. As you started the detail of it, it is horrible. So we know the rest of the story, right? You know what God did to the, to the nation of Israel. You know what he did to them, right? Forced them away from the promised land. Took them away. What happened to the nation of Judah? Same thing. They went to the Babylonian captivity. Now, most people, most of us, we say, we would learn some, right? We would learn some lessons, right? When somebody punches us so hard that we don't, we say, when we get up, we say like, ah, there is a lesson for me to learn. I should never, ever repeat the same mistakes, right? Unless something wrong with my mind. Did they learn the lessons here, okay? Let's go to Nehemiah. They go, they came, they're coming back from the captivity now. Seventy years, they're coming back. The lessons should be learned. Now we know why we were in captivity. We understand how God punished us. We understand what happened, how we were disobedience. We understand what sins we have committed. We repent of our sins and we promise we'll never ever keep repeating the same sins over and over again. That's the lesson they learned, right? No. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews, okay? I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashot, Ammon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of the Ashot and could not speak the language of the Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. Hey, they were bilingual, but not in the right languages. They could speak all the other languages except the Hebrew. And they're going back. Lessons learned, right? 70 years. For nothing. What have you learned here? So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wife to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourself, right? The lessons again and again and again. Why everything troubles happening? Intermarrying with the wrong people. All the time. And here is the same lesson. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? What things? Intermarry with the pagan wives. Yet among many nations, there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, keep reading, nevertheless, pagan woman caused him to sin. Pagan woman caused him to sin. Shouldn't we bear our personal responsibility? Yes, obviously yes, I'm not saying not, but who influenced him? Who influenced him? Now look, read verse 27. 
Should we then hear of your doing all this? And look what he calls this. Intermarry with pagan wife. This is the God's prophet. Should we then hear you doing all this great evil? It's not just, it's okay. They're such a nice people. They're going to have a wonderful life together. Great evil transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. Great evil transgressing. I don't even know how to express myself. When I, you know, when I read this thing, I didn't know, should I, should I laugh or should I cry? I had both emotions. And you know, we have this book in front of us, and we still can learn how to do the right things. Still don't trust God, obviously. I guess that's the reason. We don't trust God. We don't have faith. In, in the end. Go back to Joshua. So we, we hear here the language. Evil. Transgression. Sin. That's the language the Nehemiah used. Go to Joshua now. Joshua chapter 23. We're coming here to the close soon. Joshua chapter 23. One more time, look at the same verses. Verse 11. Therefore, take careful heed to yourself that you love your God, or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them, and go into them, and, and they too... And they to you know for certain. You look at the language how Joshua is using here. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. But look what he says. But they shall be a what? Snurs to you. But they shall be. But they shall be snurs and traps. Snurs and traps to you. And scourges on your side. And thorns in your eyes. Until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. This is the quick history. Didn't take long. Didn't take long for them to follow into this trap, to follow into this snare. These nations become a thirst in their eyes. And even to these days, these nations are thirst in their eyes. As they try to manage their, to live for some, you know, in this, in Middle East. So brethren, here in a conclusion. We need to remember when God said, as we read in Genesis, the purpose for marriage. When God said to be fruitful and multiply, God's intention was never ever to produce children of the devil. Never ever was his intention just to produce the children. So just for the sake, we have just the children. His intention from the beginning was so that we will produce the seed of God. Children for God. That was his intention from the beginning. Now, as we saw through various examples here about marriage, marriages between believers and bad and unbelievers, what? They don't produce a good fruit. Most of them will produce a bad fruit. I'll go even farther. To marry an unbeliever is an abomination in the eyes of God. I'll go that far. 
abomination inside of God. Don't even consider it. If you're not married, don't even consider it. Don't even entertain the idea in your mind about doing it. Because once you start thinking about it, you will let your mind run and think about it, and you know, eventually you will end up doing this thing. Ah, I'll change. I'll change him. I'll change her. You know, God is with me. I'm stronger. I have God's Holy Spirit. Read the examples. Read the examples. Now, for church, for us, what can we do? What can we do to encourage every single one of us to have the strong family, have the godly families, to make sure, teach our young people how they should pick their partner? It's not about how they should pick the partner. How to make God involved into the business of picking partners for both of them. How are we going to accomplish this? How are we, how we going to teach this? This is just the simple, basic principles. Without it, we don't have anything. You know, as we, as we read the, the, race, the, the ratio of the divorce that is happening all over, you know, and it's not decreasing, it's usually increasing. This will affect the church. This will affect church. You know, we have people who are already divorced in the church. We have people who will come into the church being divorced. We need to help everybody. We need to find the solutions to all these problems, you know. And how at the same time we, have, we can keep the, such a high standard, the standard of the institution of marriage at the same time. And I don't have all the answers. I'm just trying to show you the consequences when you make a bad one. It's right in the scripture how it is, how horrible it can be. It's not will just affect your life. will affect your family lives. And, you know, sometimes we will affect the generations after you when you're going to be dead and buried a long time ago. Your children will be still struggling with this for who knows how many generations. That's how serious this thing is. I'll finish just one scripture with one scripture, First Corinthians. And you know the scripture? First Corinthians chapter 10. When Paul is writing here to the Corinthians, about all, you know, everything that happened there that we just read in the Hebrew Bible, okay? All these examples, some of them so wonderful like Abraham, some of them so horrible, disgusting. But they're all there. They're all there for a reason. For important reasons, for all of us to see and to learn. Not just to see, not just to read it, but take it, take it into the heart. First Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm just going to read here two, two verses, three verses, and I'm just, I'll go away. Verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But if the temptation would also make the way of escape, that you may be able to.
to bear it. Keep this in mind as I finish my sermon. So thank you one more time for the viewers who are watching us online. Please, brother, please stand. We'll finish with the closing prayer here. Oh, loving Father, great God, we are so blessed, Father, to just have your word in front of us. So many examples that are written there for our admonition that we should be able, Father, just to go forward and not following into the same footsteps of all these horrible mistakes that our forefather used to make. Father, help us to move forward. We see the generations that are affected by the sinful behavior from their parents, Father. And we just don't realize sometimes how easy it is to break away from this thing. It just repent. Repent and start a new life. Turn things around it. Father, teach us. Teach us, Father, that we're going to uphold your word. We're going to uphold your standard way above anything else. We'll be failing. But we'll exalt your standard and motivate your people to live the best godly life as we possibly can. Father, help us, our young people. And we have many in our congregation who will be looking for a partner. Help them to realize that this is the most important decision that they will ever, ever take. And help them, Father. Help them to be involved in their choices, whatever they're going to make. Help them, Father, to rely on you as they're going to make this choice. And in the end, Father, we ask for this congregation to be fruitful, to be productive. That we, Father, all the time as we come here, each Sabbath, each holidays, we come together, Father. That we will bring to you honor and glory. And we will be proud, Father, sitting at your throne. And proudly say, these are my children. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that we enjoy. Thank you for this Sabbath day. Thank you for everything that you have done so far, Father. Please bless these people who are watching us online and hear our congregation in Burlington, Father. We thank you for so many wonderful blessings in other name, but Jesus Christ's name. Amen.